Hi there, welcome to the meeting. I'm your host, Luba, and in this season, I'm talking to professionals across industries and functions on the impact of coronavirus on their day-to-day lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying this podcast, please support it by subscribing on major podcasting platforms, sharing it with friends and family. I really, really appreciate your support. Enjoy the conversation. Today, my guest is Gustav Alstromer, a partner at Y Combinator, the famous startup accelerator. Previously, he was the product growth lead at Airbnb, where we have met. Gustav and I talk about early stage startup founders, how to come up with an idea and evaluate it, what to focus on in the early days, when is the right time to raise money. We also talked about remote work and hiring, consumer behavior change post coronavirus pandemic, and climate tech. Hey, how are you? So good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to see you too. Great to see you. How has the pandemic been treating you? How how has you know your perspective on work and life changed? I haven't had time to think about that, but I guess we've all been working from home. I started working from home two and a half months ago, finishing the last YC batch from this room, pretty much from my side. And then uh, we just completed interviews uh, for the next batch working from home. So we did two full weeks of remote interviews and it actually went surprisingly well. I think a lot of people have good experiences from remote work, um, but I think we're all very fortunate to have the ability to work a remote. So not everyone have that. So we should be thoughtful of that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely very, very lucky to be able to work remotely and be as productive or I would say even more productive working from home for me personally. I feel like it's been a huge experiment for, you know, companies and people how to be completely remote and that's been something that in the valley at least people have been very conservative about but i think everyone is kind of thinking and seeing that it's uh, it's working better than expected what do you think i think sometimes people aren't willing to take risks until you're forced to do them and this is the kind of constraints that had made us a yc think through um, a lot of the kind of preconceived ideas we had of how to do certain things and how to not do them and i think for example, doing remote interviews, I can speak for myself. Um, this seems very natural to me. And it seems like we should continue doing this because it felt very easy. Um, we probably won't do it if you're local in the Bay Area. But just as an idea, like we didn't really uh, make this work before. But now I think we've proven that this can really work. So I think once you have constraints, you end up figuring out innovations. Um, the new yeah. batch just started. Um, well, sorry, it hasn't really started yet. But the some of the companies have been accepted. So we've already seen um, some of them being very excited to do the batch because it's remote. And some of them sort of like quickly adapting to the tools and sort of like the format of a remote batch. So it's it's exciting. I think humans are adaptable in nature. And I think this is what, what we're seeing right now. In terms of uh, remote and startup building remotely, do you see the future where uh, when you hire people, you might never meet your hires or your co-founders in person and still build a successful company? I don't know. Uh, from my experience or from our experience at YC, we spend a lot of time trying to understand how the founders know each other, how they met, how long they work together, mm-hmm. because we just look in our data and the two most common reasons that companies fail is one, the, the companies run out of money, or two, the founders start fighting and disagreeing and some founders leave. And that is far more likely to happen if you have not worked together with your founder in the past. 
And it's, of course, if you, haven't, if you don't know your co-founder very well when you started, it's also more likely to happen. So we always look for, do you have a, a history of going through tough times? Do you have a history of um, making decisions with this person? We look for those things. And when there's very little history, that's usually, to me, a negative signal. Um, in the remote world, I can imagine that like that history can be remote history. You might have worked with someone remotely for a year. Uh, I guess we haven't seen very much of that up until now, but maybe that will change. But we do look for people that have a lot more than just meetings or like through some founder dating option uh, last week. We don't really prefer that. Yeah, that's actually, that's a great point because, you know, in the last couple of years, there has been so many communities, so many um, fellowships, etc., that are kind of oriented towards co-founder dating, this new idea that kind of spurred, I think, in the last few years that, hey, you can, you know, go through, go through a questionnaire and just figure out value-wise, are you a fit with this person or not, and hit the ground running. And I think we yet have to see how that will play out in the future after a decade, like people who have met through co-founder dating, will they actually stay together? And is there a future in successful company building without, as you said, um, going through the hardships, going through, you know, maybe non-company related problems together? Yeah, uh, I mean, we'll see. I'm sure some of them will stay together. Uh, from our experience, many won't. And um, and I think we have a bunch of ideas why that's the case, but, but it's just our own personal experience that kind of led us to this decision. What do you think is the future of hiring and talent in now with this huge experiment of adoption of remote and um, so many companies, you know, deciding to also go remote indefinitely? Do you see the world where uh, you're not going to be hiring based? It's going to be a ma mainstream that hiring is not going to be based on, hey, is this person in the same location that I am in? But perhaps talent is going to be democratized to more decentralized model. Hey, if you're the best person for, for the job, no matter where you are, that's based on what you're going to be hired. Uh, I, I mean, I, I remember when we were at Airbnb and we were kind of not, we were kind of adversely looking at uh, remote work and there were occasional people that sort of like had earned the right to be remote um, either because they were really good or they were kind of long with the company. And in many of those cases, it worked out really well, but with, with those, with that, like those were the exceptions and the majority of people were not encouraged to work remotely. Um, I think one of the reasons that happened is because if you have a centralized organization where everyone, no one is remote and sort of like everyone centralized is much harder to start being remote. Yeah. And you have to first be a very specific type of role in the organization for that to work. And you have to build a lot of trust with the other people. And most of the workflows are not remote. So uh, if you look on some of the YC companies that have been kind of screaming this for years now that remote works is great, like GitLab or Sapier uh, or a few others, they've been saying for years that this is the way to go. And the difference between them and Airbnb was that they are remote first. So mm -hmm. in those cases, even the founders who might live in the same city are working from different places. Right. Um, it doesn't really work to have, it's much harder to have partially remote and partially centralized. I think the way that those companies succeeded is that they were fully remote or fully mm -hmm. centralized. Um, once you're fully remote, you end up building a whole new set of processes and workflows internally to actually make it work. And I think that's what those companies did. And we are all now learning from them, like how, how to do that. And um, we're not going to be good at it. A lot of it's going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, but that's probably where, where things are going. Um, to the extent that we're going to go back, I, I think no one really knows. Um, yeah. And a lot, I think there are going to be a bunch of ex exciting experiments over the next 
couple of months when the company is saying you can stay remote forever. Mm-hmm. I do think that there are some challenges you have to figure out like time zones and, and there, there, there's some things that just doesn't fix itself right away. Um, but I'll give you one, I, one sort of like thought here is that a lot of people that think of remote work, think of how can I build an experience that kind of replaces the in-person work. So for example, can we be on video all day long? Um, and when you talk to the Sapiers and the GitLab of the world, they're like, no, it's the complete opposite. Remote works means complete asynchronous work. And we're not going to be um, talking to each other all day long, like a virtual office. So who knows? We don't really know where this is going, but I think um, the people that have been doing this for a while, we have a lot to learn from them. And I think GitLab have actually re- published sort of like a long book guide on how to do remote work publicly. So that's a good place to start for companies that want to learn from people that have done it for a while. Yeah, I do 100% agree with you that, you know, starting with remote first versus trying to replace your in-person experience and also have like half, half of your workforce remotely and half in person, that's that's very, very challenging because you have to create a different set of rules for how the remote people communicate with the non-remote people and how they collaborate, etc. And, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, I guess talking about meal rep- meat replacement products, like replacing meat to to create vegan pro- products that taste like meat, is like not starting with the problem from the ground zero of like how do we make vegan pro- products like tasty, as opposed to like try to simulate what meat products would taste like. So it's kind of I just had this analogy in my head when you were talking about like taking the in-person experience away and thinking how to simulate and replicate it um, in remote workspace is probably not the right way to approach the problem. We definitely need to learn a lot about how to start from the problem first and then build like the best solution to to make it work. I'm curious, um, you know, with the immigration politics and everything, U.S. is becoming a lot, a lot, a lot more aggressive with uh, allowing immigrants come to the country. And uh, that kind of speaks to the remote work perspective and hiring as well. But I'm wondering, what do you think is the next talent hub in the world and how will Silicon Valley itself evolve considering that, you know, now it's a Mecca for anyone around the world to come and start their company and hire talent and uh, have access to capital. Do you see Silicon Valley itself as a place evolving uh, with the immigration politics evolving as well? Or do you think things will like more or less continue the way they are? Um, I think it's a really big question. Uh, It's a lot of different things that goes into that question. I think you could argue that um, you don't need to be in, well, it's absolutely true that you don't need to be in Silicon Valley to start a great company. It doesn't mean that it's like less, like it's still pretty good to be here to start a company because there's so many different aspects that go to, goes into building a successful company. I'll give you some, something. if you want to replicate Silicon Valley either in a new city or online, you, there's a bunch of different components that you need. First of all, you need people, founders, you, know, you need people to actually want to start companies and you, you want them to be able to, to be able to live and, and do it there and come there to do it. Second, you need talent. So people that you um, are hiring, whether engineers or designers or PMs or anything else, they need to be available. Mm-hmm. Third, you need capital. So you need to be able to fundraise and maybe all of these three things can move online, but fundraising so far have not moved online. If you, there, there are many places in the world where there are great founders and great engineers, but there's not a good uh, startup, startup ecosystem where founders can actually raise money. Um, for that reason, people are coming here. Uh, and fourth, like once your company is growing, you need real expertise 
And I remember back in the days when Spotify was growing in Sweden and they were running into issues where there was like no one in Sweden that had done the things that they needed to do. So mm-hmm. the only way for them to hire someone who has experience in that area was to actually look abroad. Um, and now I'm sure if you start another company in Sweden, you can go to Spotify and hire those people um, that have done the things they need to do. But I think that when I remember working at Airbnb and we would very regularly meet with some of the other best growth teams or other best product teams uh, in the Bay Area, and they were literally the best. It was like meeting with Pinterest, meeting with Facebook, and you learn so much from them. And that is going to be a lot harder if you're in a smaller city. Now, the trends that we've seen at YC over the last couple of years is 10 years ago at YC, there was very few international companies uh, at all. Uh, maybe there were some international founders that moved to the Bay Area, started companies, and then did YC. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first Indian company did YC in 2015 or 2016. Um, the last couple of batches have had somewhere between 30 and 40 companies from India. Um, so a lot more. But those companies often operate in local markets. And many of the markets are large enough that the companies just go back and say, uh, some of the things are missing in India, but not all of the things. So we're certainly going to go back and build a company in India. And that's super encouraging. And we see that in other parts of the world as well. As well. Mm-hmm. I think the big, the big question now is going to be, can you build a fully remote company that kind of doesn't really matter where you exist? So like there's no HQ, everyone is going to spread up around the world. And there are examples of those companies being built through YC right now that went through YC a couple of, a couple of years ago that maybe have 50 people and are fully remote all across the world and are sort of fundraising here in the Bay Area, but they have employees and talent from, from everywhere. I think that if we saw local hubs popping up like uh, Paris or India or Bogota in Brazil and Latin America or, or um, a few other places, um, Waterloo, then um, we're going to see more, like the new hub is probably going to be fully, fully remote and fully online. But I think that you need to have a connection to some sort of like either um, a fundraising pool or some sort of community. And I think what we're trying to do at YC is to the extent that this is possible, replicate this community online. Gotcha. I'm curious, um, you know, you've been both on both sides of building a startup or building within a startup and now investing and really looking at the startups from a different perspective. How has your perspective on company building changed now that you've seen uh, both ways? Building a company is extremely difficult. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's funny, like, as YC and as, as entrepreneurship has gotten more popular, if you, if you will, in the last 10 years, a lot more people have started trying to start companies. Starting a company is very different than everything else you would have done up until that point in your life. Because everything else, it was kind of clear how you succeed, right? So like you go to school, you get good grades, you succeed. You get a good job, you know how to succeed at that job. You um, sort of like, you know how the goal is visible for you the whole time. When you start a startup, most people fail regardless of how great you are. So the biggest thing that you need to be ready for is sort of like, how do I deal with the fact that I might not get there? Mm-hmm. Um, because it is so hard. And like, you can just look at the stats. Majority of companies that raise a seed round don't raise an A round. Yeah. Majority of companies to get started don't raise a seed round. Majority of A companies barely raise a series B. You have sort of like, um, to become what Airbnb is, is sort of like a, one in a 10,000 situation, or maybe more than that. It's just very, very difficult. And you need a combination of just a ton of talent, a really good idea, 
a really, really good team and luck. And, and that's the ch challenging part. And I think people don't really appreciate that about startup founders enough is that no matter how good you are and how much money you have in the bank, it's still very, very difficult to build a company. And I think for the first time in people's career, the people that are spilling startups because, because it got popular are feeling that, wow, this is actually quite different than everything I've done else in, in, in my life because um, there's so much here that's sort of like unknown. And like, even if I figure everything out, I still might not have a product that people actually enjoy. So what we try to do at YC is we try to help people avoid failure. Like there's a lot of ways that you can fail here. And we try to help you avoid failure so that you have enough shots on goal to actually figure out that you're building something that people really want. Um, and that's sort of like the things that we do the best because we have the most amount of experience and data in, in, in doing that. So that's sort of like the first thing is like founders, being a company is really, really hard. And we should really appreciate people for starting companies because um, most people don't succeed versus in most jobs, ambitious people actually do really well. How do you help founders to avoid failures? Like what are the top things that, you know, people are onto and, you know, you're seeing it from the sidelines. Okay. This, this company, this team is going to fail. And then you pull them out of it. Like, what, what are you actually doing? Most people that start a company will only do it once or twice, or maybe three times in their lifetime. So to the experience that you can have from one company could be great for you, but it might not be applicable to any other company because it might be a unique situation. I remember when I started my company and we were like, how are we going to raise money? And we didn't really know. So we ended up like asking around how you did money and raise money. This is before we actually were accepted into YC. And we randomly ended up at a dinner uh, for this, the Swedish, Swedish American trade something, something in New York. Because we thought that that is how you raise money. If someone came to me today and be like, I'm going to the dinner with Swedish trade, American trade association, whatever. We were like, no, don't go to that. That's not how you raise money. But like, who knows? Because I didn't, we didn't have any experience. So how would we possibly have known how to properly do that? I mean, today you can Google yourself with the answer. But what we do is we've seen this story play out so many times that we have a good idea of what actually leads to failure. So I'll give you some examples of things that lead to failure. Not talking to customers mm -hmm. um, is a great recipe for it. Not building something that people want. Mm -hmm. And building something that people want is the first and most important step sort of like of building a company. You can fail. You can go, do great at everything else, but if you fail at that point, then you're probably going to fail as a startup. So you can raise all the money that you have, hire all the great people that you can, but if you don't build something that people really want to use, it doesn't really matter. So that's the first step. The second step is don't run out of money. So it's easy to spend money if you have it. And um, surprisingly often, even for companies that kind of are on the way to succeed, they are not thoughtful enough about the money that they raised and they end up spending it too fast and too much. And they end up just running out of money and dying because they can't succeed. Yeah. And the third thing is co-founder communication. So we know that founders not agreeing or founder not being able to communicate with each other is a really strong predictor of company failure. Um, so that's another thing that we sort of like try to help companies with. And there's lots of more small things here, but those are sort of like the most common ones. Um, but we have a pretty good pattern of things that we just see like a common one is Let's say you start a company, you've never done sales before. Most founders are just too timid and not really trying hard enough to do sales uh, because they've never done it. And they think that maybe I just need to send an email or two a week and that email leads to a customer. And it's like, it's a whole different uh, ballgame than that. But people don't know because they've never, never done it before. Mm -hmm. so, so we can give, give some advice early on, on on what you should do to succeed. That makes a lot of sense. So considering the current... Um 
current weather of the market, weather of the world, what should early founders be focused on and prioritizing right now? Uh, more than ever, founders should not try to rely on capital to build up companies. I mean, this is always a good idea, but it's probably a particularly good idea right now because there's going to be slightly less capital to raise over the next year or two. More founders should go for profitability. More founders should go from revenue right away. Uh, no one should sort of like assume that there are lots of other goals and metrics that you can raise tons of money on besides revenue. Yeah, uh, like most, most, most of the time you should go for revenue. And this is very different to what Silicon Valley was about 10, 12 years ago when everyone was talking just about number of active users or number of users because we somehow mimic the um, business models of a Facebook or, 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 or something like that, which where advertising was the, the business model. But the truth is that revenue and charging for products is the business model of absolutely the vast majority of products right now. So going for revenue is the first thing that, that people should really be doing. There are some benefits in a down market. You might be able to convince the person um, to join you as a co-founder who previously had this amazing job at this top tech startup and didn't want to leave because the career was awesome. And now it's like, well, the stock market, the, the stock is down 30%. And now I'm like below what my options are worth. So maybe I should just quit and start a company instead. Like those things are actually possible now that were not as easy before to convince someone who is really good. And I have to say that like the difference between 10 years ago and today is that some of these amazing potential founders are all locked up into amazing cushy jobs at big, big companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, e yeah. even Airbnb, um, sort of like are huge employers of really, really talented people. And these people would have started companies in the past uh, where today it's quite easy to, to be dependent on sort of like a great lifestyle. And it happens fast, faster than you think. And then you need to have sort of like a stronger will to actually be willing to leave that and start a company and start, for, start from zero. Um, so to some extent, that's sort of like what companies that start, like certainly for founders to try to hire is competing with, but even sort of like as a society, um, those are the people that would start companies um, if they didn't have a good job. So I really hope that um, some people will take this time and realize that like um, there are other options too. And starting a company is a really good option. And this is really good timing. Um, I think Airbnb is a famous example of a company that was started in the right in the middle of the financial crisis uh, and probably should have not survived because it was, it was so many times that the company was facing difficulties, but did survive and became a huge company. Yeah, I love your point on focusing on revenue and not fo focusing on vanity metrics, having spent a few years in the Valley. And of course, you've spent a lot more time here. It just, you know, it just becomes such a goal that people chase after that. Oh, I've raised money from this fund. Oh, I've raised like, this is my valuation. I closed like $10 million. It's almost more important than actually figuring out, do you have a profitable business and a sound business model? And I think now it's clearer than ever than a lot of startups that were riding that boom wave of raising money at high valuations and being really um, sounding really exciting because they were uh, gaining a lot of users and ultimately they were re relying on spending all that capital on marketing that they're not actually that great of operationally and bit like fiscally sound business model. So I think that in some ways this time is actually great because in scarcity and in um, in um, like lack of capital, you can be a lot more creative and focus on things that actually matter to build a business that will be sustainable over the long term. Yeah. So 
So I think that's very true. So let's say I'm um, really want to start a company, but I'm kind of like, you know, stuck on coming up uh, with ideas or problems that I can solve. How should someone approach that? And like, which direction should they move in to come up with something that customer wants and they want to build, obviously? A common, a common thing is um, people start with their own expertise and see are there areas that you are both passionate in and somewhat of an expert in where you can make a difference. Often that is in an intersection of technology where you can use technology to make a difference. So yeah, I'll take my own example. So like I am very passionate about solving climate change and mm -hmm. there are not a lot of software companies that are doing that. So if I were thinking about ideas, um, I would be like, where can I apply technology to build a software company to help solve climate change. That would be an area where both I think it's a exploding market because it's like, we're going to have to do this and uh, we are gonna pay for lots and lots and lots of things to in order to fix climate change. And there's actually not that many companies doing it right now. And most of them are hardware or something else, but there are lots of opportunities there. So that's one way you can do it. A second way is you can just sort of like look at direction of areas where, where where you think that you can make a difference and then just starting talking to the people that work there and trying to find what the problems are. Like it, the easiest thing to do that, um, and like not easiest, but like if you are in YC right now, um, probably starting a software company to sell to startups is going to be the easiest because people that work for startups are really easy to talk to and they love to tell you about all the problems they have and they love to give you feedback on the things you're working on versus if you sell to say plumbers, it's a lot harder, harder to get hold of plumbers who want to give you product feedback, harder to sell to them. They might not be willing to pay that much. So think sort of through who is the end market here uh, and, and selling to other startups is often a very common way the companies get started. Um, if you look on the top um, YC companies, if you look at something like Stripe, for example, all of Stripe's first customers were selling to startup. Uh, if you look at Dropbox, if you look at PagerDuty, most of these companies that are now really large products, they all start selling to startups because those companies are willing to take a bet on the, on the product that you're building. And I, I, I just, and Gusto is another good example here. Uh, Brex is another good one. So it's very common that that's where people start. Um, sometimes startups can't be customers of what you're doing because what you're building is very different than that. And then it's more likely that you end up kind of focusing on an area that's quite sort of like uh, uh, outside of that. Um, it just is a little bit different in how you have those conversations with, with potential customers. What you're really looking for is there a real problem that everyone will say, I like what you're doing. This is great. But will they actually pay for it? That's the difference between when they, when they actually want it or not. So people will give you lots of encouragement, but the two things to look for is like, will they actually use it repeatedly and will they, will they actually pay for it? So personally, would you recommend people to look at starting a company that sells to other startups? Because obviously, like if everyone's starting startups that sell to other startups as a customer, uh, if like the startup profile is more or less the same, then there's going to be oversaturation of products that, you know, that you can sell to a startup. Uh, so so that's, you... yeah, my point is that that's how you start, right? So like DoorDash, sorry, um, Dropbox's customers base today are not just startups. Mm -hmm. um, Gusto's customer base right now and not just startups, startups, but that's how you start. And those are the ones that are, it's far easier to convince a YC company to use Gusto than to convince a, a Midwestern employer to use Gusto. Far easier. Like it might be willing to do it over chat through the startup ecosystem. And that's how you get started. Uh, it's rare that you get started by having a broad spectrum kind of uh, sample of the entire market as first customers. That's kind of not as common 
as you start with a very narrow set of customers. Startup founders are also willing to take bets on new products because they're, they're themselves are founders and they know that for new things to, to exist, there needs to be a set of early adopters. So all of these things together, if you're selling to companies, you're selling a software product, selling to other startups is a really good way to start. I don't think that there's a, that big a risk of oversaturation. If something is great, it just means to, leads to more innovation. Uh, and, and I agree with you that there are some areas where there's too many companies and there's some that are too few. Mm-hmm. Um, five years ago, there's too many analytics so- so- software companies, but there are few, too few fintech companies, for example. Like most people weren't going after payroll, corporate credit cards, corporate banking, they were going after things that they were more familiar with. And I bet you there are a bunch of categories within the corporate world that people are still not going after, um, mm-hmm. that there are lots of things that we can build. No, that's very true. I'm curious to touch upon climate change. I know you're very passionate about climate tech. Do you think, well, to take a step back now during the pandemic, you know, the pollution rates are way lower, even just here in the Bay, I'm seeing the skies are so much clearer and we're seeing animals uh, thriving just everywhere around the world. Do you think this is going to be a wake up call for everyone that, hey, like companies should reduce their production? You know, fashion is one of the main contributors to the waste. And we're seeing a lot of that supply chain kind of breaking, not just because of the sustainability reason, but because of just how the industry um, is evolving, has evolved or rather not evolved over the years. Do you think something will will change after we're going to be out of the lockdown or will like all climate related things go back to what they were before, which is like pollution and just unsustainability? I'm not 100% sure how it will go. It's a little hard to predict. I think that probably the biggest predictor of people's behavior is going to be, are they scared of doing that thing? Like if you're scared of going on an airplane, if you're scared of of getting in a crowded space, then people aren't going to do that, no matter what anybody say. I think that there has been revelations of people getting closer to nature as a result of this. Mm -hmm. And I I was talking to a founder who was in New Delhi, and he basically said, not only like is the clear sky, is the sky clear, um, some people are seeing the mountains for the first time in their lives. Wow. Because there's mountains that are visible um, from part, parts of uh, that parts of India, but you haven't seen them before. So I think in some places this will make a big difference and it will motivate people to work more on this. I think it's still quite hard to sort of like to fix climate change through behavior change. Like, I, I think this is difficult. Like, yeah, it would be great if we all stop um, driving combustion and enduring cars. It's not that popular of a policy, unfortunately. Like, like otherwise this will be something that we'll be doing. I believe that the more likely way that we'll fix these things is through technology, where basically in the case of transportation, we know that electrical cars are both better, very soon gonna be cheaper, very much something that people can buy today. Right. So in that, in that world, like that's possible today, uh, we funded two companies to build electrical airplanes. That's also possible at some point. We funded companies to do synthetic uh, fuel, um, so, so like they create complete carbon neutral fuel that's also a technology solution to say airplanes or, or something like that. There are lots of solutions that are built on ideas that don't depend on people voluntarily changing their behavior, mm-hmm. because I don't think that that will be enough, unfortunately. It would be great if it is, but I'm not gonna bet, bet my life on it. Yeah, I agree that as long as the option that is more uh, like 
that is more valuable and cheaper or more convenient for the consumer. That's how the real change is going to happen. But it's only going to be a small percentage of people that decide to, you know, drive an electric car and pay a premium on it or like deal with the infrastructure or lack of thereof to charge it. Uh, if you can buy a gas car, for instance, that's like much easier to deal with and is potentially cheaper. Um, so that's true. I guess we'll see how it plays out after the lockdown is over. And the good news here is. For example, let's take electrification of, of society as an example. Uh, it is absolutely going to be more efficient and lower cost at some point to electrify everything versus using carbon fuels um, for everything. Absolutely. Uh, it's just a matter of sort of like, what, where will it happen first? Can we get the cost curve to come down? All of these things will happen. It just takes some time. If you are an Uber driver today um, and you drive a ton, it's already probably a lot more effective for you to drive an electric car than to drive a gas car. People probably don't know that. There are maybe less available, say, financial services that will allow you to take that risk of, of, of getting an electric car. The people who drive for Uber cannot so like just buy a new car left and right. So there's a lot of other innovations that doesn't have to do with just technology that need to be happen um, for this to work. If you look on why did rooftop solar take off in the US, it wasn't just a technology innovation, it's a financial innovation of the, the solar rooftop loans. So basically, you would get an almost zero down payment solar rooftop on your roof in return for, for paying and buying the electricity from that company, say Sunrun or Solar City, for the next 10 years. Uh, and that was a financial innovation that led to 2 million rooftop in America getting, getting solar. Right, right. I did hear about it, actually. Um, yeah, that's very true. It's a change of politics and policies and companies' behavior as well. I want to come back to um, the idea maze and founder's journey. Let's say you did find a problem space that you're very excited about. You started talking to the customers. You potentially start building a product. How do you really know that you're onto something? Like, how would you recommend thinking about that process or the metrics that you set or the timeline that you set for yourself to know that, hey, this is something that I should continue working on versus moving on to the drawing board? I think that there are, you're looking for micro behaviors. You're looking for the first 10 users, not just saying, I love this service, but literally showing that in their usage. And they're like, they're logging into it, using it every day. Or they um, would be very upset when they can't stop using it. Or they have absolutely no trouble paying you $200, $500, $1,000 a week or a month um, to use it. Like these are all good signs that you've built something that have real value to them. The easiest way to know that you haven't built anything of real value is that no one is coming back and using it, using it again. No one is having any strong feelings about the product that you're, you're building. They kind of feel like, yeah, this is fine, <laughs> um, but they don't feel anything else. So, so um, most of the time, uh, people just fail to ask these questions or look at these numbers. So the closer connections you have with customers and the more you look at their numbers and their repeat usage, the more likely um, is that you will know when this has happened to you. And at which point do you think startups should be looking at joining an accelerator or for outside funding? At, for us, we say at any point, it doesn't really matter. It can be right when you get started. Um, I think half of the companies we accept have not launched their product when we accept them into YC. And some portion of them have not even quit their jobs. So, so, so that is totally a thing and um, it will not change. In those scenarios, we make a bet on the team we make we always make a bet on the team, um, but obviously, if you don't have a product and you haven't quit your job, is a hundred percent a bet on the team. Uh, like there's because there's nothing else really there. So a company can apply 
to YC at any time, sort of like in, in their history. I think once you've raised the seed round or once you've raised an A round, it's too late. There's not that much. Like the value we can, we can add is, is going to be more marginal, but anywhere between sort of like, I have an idea, I have a co-founder and I want to work on something to I, I sort of like launch and have a seed round. We, we fund our companies all across that board. I think it could, the, the other question that you're kind of answering is like, when is a good time to raise funding? If you think of funding as a prerequisite to start the company, you need, you need to probably think again. Like, I know this sounds like you should take a ton of risk. Like, it's not possible for everyone to quit their job and sort of like have no salary for six months. For many founders, it is part of their founding story. So I think that I would not recommend people to see, like there's some companies that this is a prerequisite for sure. Mm-hmm. But, but in many cases, it's not. And in many cases, um, you don't need to look for funding before you build and launch your product. And people should probably do that. And just by doing that, you learn more whether this is actually um, something that you should be continuing to working on. Um, so I, I think that funding can come along the way, but it shouldn't, shouldn't really be a prerequisite uh, except for very unique cases. That makes a lot of sense. And um, how has the profile of a startup founder or a startup team or maybe a startup in general that does apply to YC has changed over the years? And do you see it evolving even more over time? So people have an idea that all the founders are very young. Uh, I think the average age of a YC founder is 29, um, which suggests that it's, it's not that young um, anymore. Almost 50% of the founders are international founders, um, where we have a lot of companies from um, from France, from UK, from India, um, from Latin America, Mexico, Canada, uh, in addition to the US. And we've seen more of those. Um, We've seen more women founders, but we want to see a lot more. This is still something that we have a lot of work to do. And I think the whole, like we report our numbers at every demo day um, on how we're doing just as a way to show that um, you can't really succeed at something unless you're measuring it. And we're measuring it across the board. But even at the top of the funnel, we need more uh, women to start companies. I think we've seen a lot change in the type of companies people start. So the first batch of first couple of batches of YC were all software companies, all consumer software companies, pretty much. Um, today, the majority of companies are B2B software, not consumer. And there's a huge group of companies that are biotech, or sort of the intersection of technology and biotech. Uh, we found hardware companies. We found um, sort of like D2C consumer brands, um, where you might think that there's not that much software there. A lot of the software, or so a lot of the the Difficultiness in addition to building the actual product is in um, is in go to market. So, like, what is the, the marketing strategy? What is the pricing strategy? A lot of those things are much more difficult than than what it seems. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the most successful companies there are actually quite technical in, in their founding teams. Um, so yeah, it's across the board. But but the most common company to today is is a B two B software company. Interesting. And why do you think that is? Why has the amount of consumer B two C companies dropped so much? Is it because of the oversaturation or consumers don't want to spend like their time on too many, you know, apps and products at the same time? I think we have some clear winners mm-hmm. in the market. I think that there are the Facebook, the Twitters, the yeah. Instagrams of the world have, are, are occupying hours of our time every day, uh, the YouTubes of the world. So there are less type of companies you can start. Perhaps the growth channels that exist to launch something are limited. So you are kind of bound to paid growth in, in many of these ca- cases. And if you're not making money from your company, then it's going to be harder for you to grow. And even like the SEO channels were like, there are mo- many of the ideas are like have already been kind of um, already quite competitive. I think there are lots of consumer fintech services, for example, especially as of the US. And I think fintech is an area where we saw a ton of stuff happening the last couple of years. 
and we continue to see a ton of things happening. And it's often unique products for every country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that we're going to see one bank who sort of like exists in 50 countries and being the winner in every country. I don't think that is going to happen for a while, but that leaves a lot of opportunity for individual startups to build those services for each country. Uh, and there are a lot of companies doing that, um, a ton of them. Um, and, and luckily the big consumer companies aren't really going to go after that right now. Um, so that, those are some, some of the areas of people going after. I think there's going to be requiring kind of a more ingenuity, but mm-hmm. in terms of say commerce, most of the commerce is not online. Um, like it, there's, I think I saw numbers that shifted from 10% to 25% just in the last two months. Um, because of Corona, you, you mean e-commerce uh, penetration? I think it was like ten percent to like almost thirty-five percent or something like that. I saw this oh, graph. Oh, yeah, that's more than, more than I saw. But basically, up until now, most of the money that we spend on products are still offline. So, yeah. so, the, so, I, I don't think that reflects the lives of people who live here. So, the world has a long way to catch up. And those numbers were U.S. numbers. So, if you look yeah. on the rest of the world, there's a lot of things that are going to move online. They're not online yet. Speaking of that, actually, with let's say you mentioned e-commerce penetration, and of course now there has been a huge trend in remote work products and tools, um, and that all has happened because of the pandemic we're in right now. How much of that consumer behavior you think will stick around after the lockdown, and how much of it will just go away because things will more or less go back to what they were before? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know actually. We'll see. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, because you know. Now, I'm sure there's a ton of people that are start, starting to think about starting company in one of the spaces that's very hot right now, but that's very much TBD, like whether they're... I certainly would like to go back to the office myself, um, but I think I would prefer to have a more, even more flexible, uh, sort of like being in the office for, versus being remote. But I wouldn't want to, personally, I wouldn't want to be remote for the rest of my life, but other people might, and that's totally fine. So who knows? I don't think that... We really know, um, but I think um, that the option for someone who wants to be remote and live remotely, there's going to be so many options for those people um, uh, going forward because yeah. people have seen seen that it, it, it can be done. So even if it's not something for everyone, there will be something um, for everyone who wants to be remote. Absolutely. That makes sense. My question to you is what skills do you think people should focus on right this um, moment in time and history to really be a relevance and innovative and be, um, you know, be afloat in the world of the future? The actual tools that you end up using, they change all the time. So, so the most important skill is just the, the skill, the learning to change and learn to learn. Mm -hmm. So, um, the programming language, the software they're using or whatever you're using right now will probably be very different in five years or in 10 years. And that kind of, that cycle keeps going. So the ability to be open-minded and learning new things um, is the most important skill. Um, Having a really solid technical foundation is going to be the second most important thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I experienced this at Airbnb very clearly. Every single kind of vertical of problems in a company can and will at some point be solved by technology. If it hasn't been solved by technology yet, it can be. And it's almost like we're going through new cycles of abstraction all the time. So if you would build, like, like I like to present this idea to founders of if you have a non-technical problem, see if you compare that solution, the team that's solving that problem with an engineer or someone who understands technology really well and see if they come up to, to different set of solutions. Um, so being that technical person, 
um, is going to be continue to be super, super valuable. I don't have a lot more things to say generally than those two things. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Like it's, it's hard for me to be more prescriptive than, than those two things, but those are the things that I would say. Yeah, I do agree that technology and understanding technology, perhaps you're not going to be the person who wants to necessarily code and dive deep into it, but at least speaking the language so that you can, you know, hire someone or meet someone who does uh, know how to code and who does uh, know the language of technology. That would be a paramount uh, difference, I think. In the Yeah. And in terms of the, uh, the biotech question, I'm going to send you a link afterwards that you can post in the notes uh, that my coworker, Jared, uh, Friedman's giving a talk at Harvard uh, about how to start a biotech company or how to do startups for biotech founders. So he gave a really good talk on YouTube that uh, I think thank you. Share. Yeah, we'll definitely share with everyone. Gustav, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you for answering my questions. I really appreciate it. I think we had a um, really insightful and interesting conversation and I've learned a lot as always from you. Thank yeah. you so much, Luba. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining me today. You can find Gustav at Gustav on Twitter, and I would highly recommend you to listen to Y Combinator startup series on YouTube if you are interested in starting a company of your own. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. As always, if you enjoyed it, please share it with family and friends. Subscribe on the major podcasting platforms. I would really, really appreciate your support. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye for now.